Well, that's really cool. Okay, a uh, quick question about you guys. I know, I know in New York State that extraglottic, supraglottic airways are a paramedic only thing. Does that apply to New Jersey as well? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Right. Fuck! Yep. What's wrong with you people? <laughs> well. <laughs> Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Overrun Podcast. My name is Ed Bowder. I'm Dan Schwesker. And I'm Kevin Mazza. And today we have Dr. Jim DeCanto with us, and we're going to talk about everything airway. All the things, oh, yes. all the time. Dr. DeCanto, thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you for inviting me. Um, you guys asked for this, so uh, uh, here we are. We're on a Sunday, uh, sunny Sunday afternoon. You guys are in New Jersey. I'm in Wisconsin. Uh, there's no tornadoes. There's no torrential rainstorms, hail, fire from the sky. Uh, we're in, we're in pretty good shape here. It, it's so odd for the modern era. Like <laughs> it's all about those yeah. small victories. <laughs> it's about those small victories, man. So, Doctor Decanter, the first thing that we we wanted to bring you on to talk about just airway maneuvers in general. It's something that tends to get lost uh, through attrition over time. So, when you're first entered into EMT and medic school, the first thing you're taught is that your airway management is the most important thing. So, from from your perspective, give us give the listeners that aren't aware of you a little bit of your background, and then talk to us about why maybe we've lost some focus on airway things, and just generally speaking, how we can get back to that, and then we're going to get a little bit more granular and start breaking things down. Okay, guys, I'm an anesthesiologist, and I think um, when I go back and I look at who I am and what I've done, I've always really been very interested in airway management. This started at a very early age. <clears throat> when I was 12 years old, I went to a scuba camp at uh, uh, Culver Military Academy in Culver, Indiana. And one of the things that they forced us to do, aside from using, we were using an older model, learning how to scuba dive. And I mean, they were, they were making us swim two lengths of the swimming pool underwater, just with, you know, with fins and then without fins. Um, without, you know, holding your breath, they made us like dive into a 14, 15 foot diving pool, recover the equipment, breathe from it, then dump it and ascend. I mean, they did all sorts of stuff. And then what they also did was the AHA's um, uh, CPR curricula, which um, of course we're talking about a 15 to two ratio for chest compressions and breaths. Uh, we were actually doing mouth to mouth resuscitation on Recessa Annie. Uh, I was, uh, I mean, I was kind of grossed out by it, but it was a very good introduction to uh, the entire topic of uh, resuscitation. And I, uh, I was drawn to medicine from a very early age. I originally wanted to become a surgeon, but I found it just, it just, it just didn't fit who I was. And I ended up in anesthesia. Um, the first day of anesthesia training, uh, the professor of anesthesia has since passed on Dr. Gunzuri, who's known for creating a fiber optic uh, tracheal intubation program in the residency program in Chicago, where I did my anesthesia residency, he said to us in an Egyptian accent, and I'm not going to try to mimic the Egyptian accent. It's not going to work. <laughs> okay. I'm going to say something to you that I hope you're never going to forget. It's very, very difficult to kill a breathing patient. And I uh, thought to myself, oh man, that, this is some heavy shit, man. I better listen to this guy. So what he taught... I want you to understand that when I was in training 1993 through 96 in anesthesia, I never saw a bougie until my last two weeks of residency in 1996, when a guy by the name of Dr. Keene is a, uh, originally trained, uh, he's Irish and he was trained in Ireland and he's in working in Chicago. We had a case at like 10 o'clock at night, <clears throat> morbidly obese patient needed a neurosurgical procedure. And I'm like, 
sweet man, I'm going to pull the flexible fiber optic bronchoscope out and intubate this patient because the patient obviously had some difficult air. The patient did have difficult airway indicators. And Dr. Keene says, oh, no, this is my last night on call. This is my last shift ever. I'm going to take this airway. And Dr. Keene pulls a bougie out of his scrub top pocket. We induce the patient. He intubates the patient with a bougie steps back, takes the bougie, washes it in the sink, sticks it back in his pocket. And that was the first time I ever saw a bougie. <laughs> Why? Because Dr. Gonzuri wanted all the anesthesia trainees to master flexible fiber optic bronchoscopy. So did I just do the required 50 fiber optic intubations or did I take it a bit further? Ed, what do you think? Did, did I take it a bit further or did I just do the 50? I'm going to say you probably took it a bit further. Like so I, I'm, I'm going to guess logarithmically further. What I did was by the time I left, I was better than the attendings. I'm not making this up. <laughs> by the time I left, every single intensive care unit patient for me got nothing but topical local anesthetic, a bite block, and a fiber optic bronch. I must have intubated about 40, 50 people in, um, uh, outside the operating room. I mean, I think I did 40 outside the operating room that way. I did 50 alone at the Peds Hospital. And when I was done, I had 207. And these oh. are flexible fiber optics. And so when I left residency, Dr. Gonzuri gave me like a check and a graduation card for, for setting the record that has never been broken at that hospital. <laughs> and so what happened was, is I went into clinical practice with a, uh, a skill that I think normally you have to be, you'd have to be a pulmonologist to have that kind of experience with a bronchoscope. And even back then, and even today, I mean, even today, the skill is waning in anesthesiology of being able to handle a flexible bronch. No one is ever getting that kind of exposure anymore. But this is literally 10 years before we ever saw something called the GlideScope. So I left, I left residency in 96. The first time I ever saw a GlideScope was in about 2002, 2003, when they were trying to start a hu hustling it in the Midwestern United States. Back then, uh, I hope this isn't too much for you. To hear so the GlideScope shows up on my doorstep and they brought it to me because it was clear, you know, my partners didn't sort of really know what the hell to think of me, but what they knew was that this guy could intubate anybody. And so uh, I rescued a few of the senior partners on a few things. And um, uh, although I'm a little bit different, they just sort of tolerated me because I was always very uh, helpful and I could help them with a very serious problem. So Clydescope comes out, I look at it, and I, I was still actually in 2002, 2003, still felt like I needed to practice fiber optic intubation. So I wasn't really interested in the Clydescope when I first saw it because I was still working on my skills with bronchoscopy, which is, sounds really crazy. So a few years go by and I get a phone call. Uh, I'm, very, uh, I'm friends with a lot of people in the medical device industry because I love stuff. I'm just a gadget guy. Of course, everybody knows me because I know them because I want to know them and I want to help them when I can help them because um, we can't have good stuff unless we help them sell us good stuff or provide good products. And if a product isn't good and someone brings a product to me, I'll be completely honest with you. This is not going to sell any better. It's not, it doesn't solve a problem any better than what we already have, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So mm -hmm. 2006 rolls around and I'm talking to, I won't name the guy or the company, but he is this Chicago salesman for the GlideScope. And at that time, the company that makes the GlideScope um, changes hands, gets sold. And the company that formed wanted to take back the ability to distribute the GlideScope itself. So they took back the ability to sell these things uh, nationally from the local distributors. 
and there was an orphan to Glidescope in Chicago. And so I met the guy at the state line between Wisconsin and Illinois in front of the Bass Pro Shop. And I gave him a check for $4,000. And I, bought I know exactly where that is, too. <laughs> and so I bought it. I, I opened the trunk of my uh, Subaru WRX, by the way, one of the first that you could get in the United States. Mm-hmm. I put a muffler on it, the big enough to put a dachshund in there. And so, <laughs> and so I put it in the trunk of the car and got back on the road. Um, I mean, I had that thing lowered. I mean, it was, it was cool. It was too, it got to the point where I had back pain from driving the thing. So I got rid of it. So, um, so I got this glide scope, but, um, I'm really at that time had gotten really, really good at intubating through the air cue, uh, LMA, the air cue superglottic airway. And I actually, uh, know the guy personally who makes it as a result of meeting him at a national meeting of the American society of anesthesia. And back then, one of the things I discovered was that, you know, everybody remembers Rich Levitan. Rich Levitan had his own endoscope, the Levitan stylet. I discovered <clears throat> that you can intubate through the air cue LMA and also other LMAs with the Levitan stylet. If you shaped it a certain way, and if you used a certain technique that looks a lot like you're pulling on the handle of a slot machine called the one-armed bandit. <clears throat> and so I would carry a Levitan stylet, stylet with me everywhere I went so that if I had any difficulty at all, um, I could intubate, um, the patient through the supraglottic airway. So I was really, really, really good at this technique and it's still my fallback technique. As a result of it, I didn't trust the GlideScope for difficult airways for quite a while because I was really focused on the thing that I was really good at, right? Ultimately three, four, five, six, five years goes by and I start using the GlideScope and trusting it. But the reason I could trust the GlideScope was that I always knew that I could intubate with a bronchoscope, especially through an LMA. Okay. So I I always had the safety of trying a new technique because I could always get, I knew I could always get the job done. I could always bail myself out. Um, So video laryngoscopy came into my life a little bit more gradually. There was a, a physician in my group who started using the GlideScope and he started to trust it. And as a result, the rest of the department started to trust the GlideScope. And the GlideScope became a thing in my department because it was a different physician, not me, who made it popular. Um, I think there was an attitude that um, that uh, this Ducanto guy, um, yeah, he can make it work, but that doesn't mean we all can make it work. And I understand, you know, some of us just have, you know, what could be, if you use the Australian expression, legendary skill. Um, if you have this legendary skill, the thing is that people understand that they can't necessarily replicate that. It's got to be simple. So let me just tell you my airway journey has been that I kind of climbed a mountain and discovered that it didn't really matter if I shared with you all these amazing techniques that made that worked for me. I had to start looking towards things that worked for people at the bottom of the hill. You know, and so um, obviously I got good at video laryngoscopy over time. Um what also really, and I think you guys will really enjoy to uh, ha- be happy to hear this, is what really made me much better was actually taking on students. We have an internal medicine residency at the hospital that I was working at for 23 years. I have since last summer left that hospital. These, our residents in that program, and I think you can all understand this because you're in New Jersey and New York area, that they're, they're all from other countries, in fact. During one period of time, every single resident was from the, was from the Sudan. They're all Sudanese and they were just, I mean, they're just very smart. But when you gave them something, this is, I want you to pick up this dog treat with this clamp. It would be like this. No, 
They're no good with their hands. And so what I had to discover was how to teach people who were going to be trusted to do a critical procedure, but they weren't going to be very good at it. So I said, okay, look, dude, I got to figure out how to take people who aren't very good with their hands, can't remember much. This has to be simple and it has to work. And so one of the first things I learned about um, airway management when it came to um, uh, resonance, especially ones that essentially internal medicine residents who had to study for a board exam in a foreign language and pass the damn test was they couldn't put a laryngoscope. I don't have a laryngoscope. All I have is this. They couldn't put a laryngoscope in the patient's mouth in under 45 seconds. So I said, all right, look, let's say that this is a tongue depressor. If they put the tongue depressor in the mouth and they push the tongue securely into the floor of the mouth and maybe lift a little bit. What it'll do is create more intraoral space and a little bit of hyperpharyngeal space so they can place the laryngoscope in a timely fashion because the clock is ticking with airway management. Um, I found that that was very successful with some students and some students, eh, they didn't really get it. It's okay. What I also discovered about some students was some of them were actually really reluctant learners. It's not that they couldn't do it, it's that they didn't want to. I mean, I, I know that if if you guys are in EMS and you're required to do a job, but you don't really want to do it, I mean, that's got to be hard. You got to make a decision about what you want to do because you, you have to do it. You know, you, you're put in the position. Being we're, we're in an industry where we we very much often want to do the easiest thing over the, okay, right, the okay. better thing. Cool. So, you know, moving forward, um, I did a bunch of projects. One of the studies, one of the things you want to talk about was a paper published in 2015 where... Um, um, there was a, there was a device that came into my, um, perimeter in 2008 called the oscillator. Um, and I learned about it at the society for airway management. It was in Boston in 2008 that year. And the doc, the doctor who, rep- uh, the, who introduced it to me was Richard Agababian, who was the former chairman of the department of emergency medicine at the university of Massachusetts, Worcester. He's also apparently one of the fathers of disaster medicine, Dr. Agababian actually went on the uh, on behalf of the American the United States State Department went to Armenia I think in 1996 on behalf of the State Department because Armenia's infrastructure for healthcare was destroyed following the war with Azerbaijan and Dr. Agababian brought a sack full of oscillators and what happened was that they found out that these things not only did they work but they were literally using the, them as ventilators for brain uh, you know closed head injury patients. Uh, they're using them in the pre-hospital system. And the damn thing was tough as nails and resilient. And apparently some of them, which are over 20, 25 years old, are still in service in Armenia. And the, the paint is completely rubbed off of them. No one knows where the numbers are on the damn thing, but it's so easy to use that they use it anyway. So Dr. Agabamian introduced me to the device through a simulation in which we had four patients who suffered chlorine gas exposure at a chlorine plant. And there were two physicians, myself and another physician uh, who had to manage these four patients simultaneously. The first patient I walked up to, I just bag valve masked a patient. It's a mannequin. The second patient is on a table, but there's a oscillator, which I didn't know what it was and a mannequin on the table. And so I put it on the mannequin and I pushed the big gold button. It's like a demand valve and I breathe for the patient. And I hear someone over my shoulder says, hey, he doesn't know how that works. Show him how it works. And someone kind of walks over 
turns the gold knob and locks the device on. And uh, let me see if I've got one here. Uh, no, I don't have one here. I could go get one. You guys want me to get an oxalate? You want to see this thing? Yeah, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, yeah, hold on. Give sure. me one second. Give me one second. I was carrying this one with me because I was working at a surgery center recently where I was doing GI endoscopies and I wanted to have a way of rescuing myself if I oversedated the patient. That, that makes sense. And I, and I, and I, and I almost needed it, but it, everything turned around and this is descended from the demand valve. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. It looks a lot like a demand, the old school demand valves or the so, you push and release for um, manual ventilation. Okay. You lock it down. And what will happen is that this will cycle at 500 milliliters per second, uh, 30 liters a minute in, on the inspiratory phase until it reaches the pressure release. And then there's a magnetic valve here that will not allow you to exceed the pressure. It'll pop up and allow passive exhalation. And when the airway pressure reaches four centimeters of water, it'll click back down and it'll del deliver the next breath. So as the story goes is I've got this on the mannequin and I'm ventilating the mannequin with two hands. It's beautiful, right? I'm pushing and releasing, pushing and releasing. One of these guys locks the knob down and then the device goes into what's called the automatic mode and it autonomously ventilates the patient. Uh, breath after breath after breath. By the third breath, I knew what the hell the thing was doing. So what I did was I said, all right, this is kind of like a game, this simulation. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to win. <laughs> <laughs> it's always the best motivator, right? Like, no, nah, this, is, this is my so, house. <laughs> so, Doc, so, Doc, basically, is this, is this a mechanical ventilator that just does APRV? In many ways, it looks a lot like ARPV. If you look at the curve, it looks a lot like it. The device has been out since uh, 1995. Um, the reason you don't know about it is the it was really only marketed to the United States military in this country. And internationally, it's been marketed to uh, EMS and military services. This particular model is the one that the, uh, the Thai military uses, by the way. Okay. Um, you see, this sees a lot of uh, sales overseas. Um, and also there's a version of, uh, I'll get to the next version. There's a version of this that's made for um, underground mining rescue where there's toxic atmospheres and you can't allow the victim to inhale any ambient room air because it's toxic. There's a version of it that has a second stage with a, with a demand valve, an actual demand valve. So if the patient inhales, it cracks open the demand valve that goes through this and into the patient. I just, so that comes to the next, the next story. So, um, my mannequin's being ventilated. I'm saying, I'm going to win. I got a third patient. My eyes come up off the mannequin and I see a roll of duct tape. I grab the roll of duct tape and I tape the mask to the head of the, of the mannequin. <laughs> and the entire room bursts out in laughter because the, 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 the damn thing is just sitting there ventilating the mannequin. And then I walk to the third mannequin. There's tracheal intubation stuff. And there's a paramedic in full hazmat gear standing there. His name's. um, uh, he's a paramedic out of UMass, um, um, Jorge, uh, is Jorge Yazerbeski? Might be. I innovate the mannequin and I said, you, you ventilate this one. I'm going to go back to the other one. I ventilated three patients. <clears throat> <'Cause> the <laughs> Jorge, this, myself. 
the other the other the other um, physician was recently graduated from a, a very prestigious academic uh, anesthesiology program in Chicago. Not not mine. I wasn't at a prestigious program. I was at a program. It was a uh, well, they worked, they worked us really hard. It was a really a private practice m m masquerading as a, um, as a, uh, academic center. So in other words, I got a lot of experience, um, but she, well, she couldn't figure it out. So what the hell, but you know, I, I figured, look, if you're going to win, win, you know, there's no rules here. That roll of tape there, as far as I'm concerned, is part of the simulation. Yeah, it works. Yeah. 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 So, okay. So the oscillator, um, God, why am I telling you this? Um, so we're up to video laryngoscopy. We're up to oxalator. Um, the oxalator really changed my practice because when I see a difficult airway, I just, uh, my, my goal is to ventilate and ventilate and ventilate and then uh, do the invasive airway procedure. Uh, because if you can ventilate before you do the procedure, you've got time. If you don't have time, you, um, you know, one of the overrun productions should have a subtext. Your results may vary. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's on all, all of our uh, disclaimer sheets. We're like what we're doing is it's good. It's educational, your, but your results may vary. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> okay. So, so in 2015, um, I got up to, I discovered around 2011, 2012, um, that, uh, I was really, really big into using these things. And so I got to, I got to know everybody. I deep dived it. I visited the factory in uh, Markham, Ontario. Uh, this thing is actually made in Canada. And um, so I uh, got close to the people who make this thing. Um, they weren't paying me to do this kind of stuff, but they says, yeah, you want an oxalator? Here's an oxalator. And I get sent an oxalator that wasn't um, made for use in the United States. It was made for sale to the international mining community. It looks almost just like this, except it has a second stage. And I deduced that it was made as a self-contained breathing apparatus. So what can a self a properly constructed self-contained breathing apparatus do? It can work in the water. And indeed, if you know about mining rescue, um, they actually use rebreathers. And sometimes those guys and gals, they actually have to go underwater because the mines get flooded. They has to tolerate immersion. So I said, well, let me see if this damn thing works. So I filled up a bathtub, got an air compressor to run it. And by, by golly, the damn thing worked underwater. So um, I lived pretty close to a high school with a swimming pool and I got permission to try it out. So I scuba dived with it. And what one thing led to another, I started to look into the literature for uh, uh, the latest and, and greatest in um, uh, wa water uh, resuscitation, you know, resuscitation of drowning victims. And I found a anesthesiologist in Germany who had done some academic papers and a PhD in, um, in the topic. And we formed a, uh, an understanding that what we were planning on doing was meeting in 2013 at the World Congress on Drowning Prevention in um, um, Potsdam, Germany. And so I went to Potsdam and I presented a presentation that looked like science fiction. It was underwater ventilation. And there's a bunch of people sitting there and it just looked like they were grandfathers forced to sit through a Saturday morning cartoon. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, they're like, what, what? Right. <laughs> so the next thing that happens because there is more is I meet the guys who are into, um, they're into a, a concept called, there's another paper that I was included on 
which was their paper, but I helped I helped them make sure the English was in stru- good structure for publication in an English journal. Was a helicopter EMS based, a helicopter based rescue for water for drowning, and these guys had a concept where, um, and, you know, Germany has a network of helicopter uh, emergency medicine helicopters where they're kind of oversupplied, um, so they're kind of they're kind of looking to see how they can use their resources. And these guys had this concept that when, when a call would come in for a drowning, the helicopter would take off, land at the hospital, pick up the two rescue divers who were anesthesiologists, by the way, the helicopter would go over the body of water, drop one guy in the water with a raft, a special raft and a Lucas. And um, uh, the guy, uh, two, they dropped two guys in the water one guy would go get the victim. The other guy would inflate the raft. They bring the victim up to the raft, put a Lucas on them, manage the airway, probably with a superglottic, start CPR and rescue ventilation. And then the helicopter would tow the raft to the shore. And so they did this demonstration with this raft in this, this, uh, little, uh, this little um, conference hall where they literally inflated a raft, like, you know, like bang, this gas and this thing inflates and it was, I mean, dude, this was just like, uh, this is like the coolest thing I've ever seen. So what we then did, it was separately when the conference ended, we both drove to Kiel where the German Navy um, uh, research center for uh, underwater stuff is held. That's where the submarine base is. And we did a project in the German Navy's hyperbaric chamber. We put the oscillator into the hyperbaric chamber with a, a diver, one of the anesthesiologists and there. They have a swimming pool not really a swimming pool, it's a water pool in a hyperbaric chamber. So when they compress the chamber, it compresses the water. So if you're in the water wearing scuba gear, the ambient pressure of the chamber equals the the depth. And so this guy went to literally 66 feet of seawater depth and he ventilated the mannequin uh, with the oxalator through a tracheal tube. I have an under, I made an underwater video laryngoscope out of a Pentax AWS S100. I made a pressure enclosure the vi- underwater video laryngoscope worked. We intubated the mannequin. We used a, a Shikani stylet to intubate. And, um, and then we tested the oxalator uh, in the hyperbaric chamber without anybody in it. And we dove to 166 feet and they put a Lucas one, which is gas powered on the mannequin. And by golly, the Lucas one worked all the way down to the bottom. But after 33 feet, it, its rate got high and its and the depth of compression got low. So it really only worked to about, you know, one more atmosphere. And so the, by and large, we wrote a paper on underwater resuscitation because here's the assumption. The assumption is that you've drowned and you're still underwater, that you're dead. I said, well, you know, why is it that your assumption is that somebody is dead if they're drowned and they're underwater, why can't you start the resuscitation early? Because there's certain circumstances in commercial diving, military diving, where you might want to start resuscitation before you haul them out. Otherwise, um, you know, they, they, they will be dead. They won't be salvageable. So um, Dr. DeCanto, what you're talking about, it's, it's out of resuscitation in 2015. It'll be linked in the show notes. Yeah. I, my, my favorite part about reading through this paper isn't the, because I, I imagine someone who is listening and be like, you're going to resuscitate underwater. Yeah, I bet you will. That sounds fun. Yeah. Um, my favorite part <laughs> about reading through the paper isn't that the resuscitation didn't necessarily go. And obviously it's simulated. We, we all know that, but it wasn't so much that, you know, the resuscitation didn't go well. It wasn't the problem with fluid in the airways. It was that when you get deep enough, the Lucas doesn't compress effectively. Like, like all of the stuff that you would imagine, all the absurdity or like, well, no, the problem was actually the machine 
later on. Well, I, it, it I, runs on yeah, it runs on 55 PSI. Right. <clears throat> and as you go deeper, the ambient water pressure begins to equal the supply pressure of the device, which is why the oxalator worked down 166 feet, but the inspiratory time got up to three or four seconds. And um, I mean, because it, it probably reduced its inspiratory flow rate down to t between below 10 liters per minute. So that's what goes on, you know. And it's this like is when, when, like when the we're going space through. program of uh, pre-hospital medicine. This is exactly like, like I, how can we how can we push the envelope? I just and learn. Yeah. Oh, look, I just stumbled into this because I just I looked at it and I was curious. You know, if uh, one of the right. underlying themes of this whole thing is just I just have an undying curiosity, and it, it, even if it looks ridiculous, you, have, you still have to answer the question. You know. So well, and that's I think it's important in in medicine and science in general is that you don't. Like as, as silly as it may sound, you can't stop asking questions and exploring things. That's pretty much, that's sure. how, that's yeah. how discovery is made. That's right. And I mean, um, you, you guys all know the origin of, you know, those, uh, ultraviolet lights that are used for babies who are jaundiced. Yes. You know who figured that out? It was a nurse. It was a nurse in a Nordic country, uh, or, uh it was the UK or was it Norway or was it Sweden? And the baby that was put by the window with the sunlight, the, the jaundice went away faster. They just, they just saw yeah, it. And, just vanished, right. And the science came afterwards. You know, you just have to pay attention. And um, Well, and that's all the good stuff, right? That's how, that's penicillin too. Like, well, maybe this yeah. mold will work, you know? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, so in the wake of doing something that sounded and was very, very fun, but nobody cared about, I was left with, uh, I had hacked mannequin, a mannequin to work underwater. I had this, it was a Laredal, a difficult airway simulator. I had to hack it, remove parts. I had to put cables through it so I could sink, put lead weights on it so it wouldn't float. So I had this mannequin that was hacked. And I said, well, first things first, mannequins are models. And you can only learn a certain amount from a given model, which is why I went ahead and purchased more models. I had owned several mannequins and I've given away many mannequins after I've learned what I can learn from them. And I said to myself, what else can I learn from this thing? What else can this thing teach me? Because I reached the limit of what I can learn from this mannequin. So I said, well, if they're only models and they can be modified, why don't I just modify it some more? So one day, and I was actually talking to a guy named Owen Colgan. He's runs this um, online uh, education utility called Continuous. He's in Glasgow, Scotland. And he asked me, how did you come up with the whole idea of salad? Did you have a bad case? I mean, you know, what, what stimulated to do this? And the answer was, well, I was actually in the hardware store and walking through plumbing. And I saw that there was a $10 part that you could connect a pump to a drill. And I said, you know what? I'm going to buy this thing. Okay. I don't know. What the hell I'm going <laughs> to do, you know, do it. Here we go. <laughs> and so I got some hoses out and I connected the, the esophagus of the mannequin to the pump, drill pump. And I started like making the van, mannequin vomit. And I says, you know, maybe I can learn something from this. So then I thought, okay, this is great, but you have to squeeze and release the drill. So how can I make this so that it's easier for me to make the drill turn on and off and change the speed and all this stuff. So what I got was a rheostat. Um, so I could put the drill on maximum thrust and lock it. And then I use the rheostat to change the RPMs of the drill. And then I got a simple on off push button that was actually a radio remote. And so I could make the mannequin vomit on command and stop on command. And one of the first per people I ever shared this with was an emergency medicine guy at the hospital I was working at. His name is Jason. Um, and when Jason saw this, uh, Jason's pretty easygoing dude, but when Jason saw this and his eyes 
or open, like he saw something that like wasn't just old hat. It was something like, oh, oh my God, oh my God, I have to play with this. I have to touch this. And uh, Jason just made me just uh, say, hey, man, you know, um, usually these funny, weird projects I do, people are just sort of like, they can't wait to get the hell out of here, <laughs> you know? But Jason right. was like, dude, this is amazing. So we put, we put a LMA Supreme in, hit the thing and like the, like the, the brown juice I had made, which was made out of brown vinegar, like freaking shoots up three feet in the air. And we're just all laughing our asses off as because I'm trying to turn the drill pump off because this thing's just geysering up and there's like carpet on the floor of my lab. And so, um, yeah, that was, uh, that was the beginning. <laughs> Well, and and it's funny because salad, you know, the, the mannequins actually became like a thing. Like people were sharing their mannequin designs on, uh, you know, online, on Fomed. Like, like the one guy be like, I got a hand pump for mine. And then somebody's like, hey, I got a bilge pump and I wired a battery into it. Yeah, right. um, I remember I, I went to Germany for Das Smack and we went to Gelfest and there was like six of them all going at the same time. And it was it was just bananas, all different designs. That was it really it really got to be it was really really cool. I was, I mean, I learned a lot, you know, I learned about a little bit about the German culture, but they really, really, really like to make things weird. So we had four, <laughs> we had four, four, we actually had four mannequins. I mean, yep. yeah, look, um, but like the table, there was a bar and then there was four mannequins. So we had a salad bar and uh, it was just, bar, and it, it was just, yeah. it was just, uh, I mean, it was like, it was a disc. We rented, they rented out a, a disco called Gretchen and um, it's just, it was just almost a gritty, but freaking cool place, man. And then we had like a sim, a sim war. And I mean, all this cool stuff happened. And my friend, Jim Horowitz, who's in New York city. And I, we, we brought costumes to the party. So I dressed up as an inflatable Tyrannosaurus Rex and Jim dressed up as Elmo because he had bought them for his daughter, his, his twin daughter's birthday party. So he brought it to Germany and my daughter and my wife were with me. And um, Jim left the head of Elmo sitting near my wife and my daughter. My wife and my daughter, who came on the trip with me, basically just sat on a bench with their backs to the wall and just watched it all and said nothing. <laughs> just taking it all in. And so my daughter saw somebody who tried to steal the head of Elmo, and my daughter stopped this lady from stealing Elmo's head. And so <laughs> my daughter's a hero. Um, so speaking of Elmo, every week or every episode that we have, we have Dr. Peter Antevi who comes up and gives us some pediatric pearls. So we're going to take a minute, throw to Dr. Antevi, and then we'll come back with Dr. Jim DeCant. Hey, everyone. This is Dr. Peter Antevi with another pediatric pearl. Today, I want to talk about croup versus asthma. You will end up oftentimes in the middle of the night at a home where you have a mother who is very panicked about her child who suddenly woke up in the middle of the night with a weird cough and doesn't look right. Take that and go against another child who also has respiratory distress, but some people have a very hard time differentiating. Is it asthma or is it croup? So I have, to, I have a very easy way to determine this, and it goes to the physiology of croup and the physiology of asthma. Kids who have croup have a little runny nose when they go to bed at night, and then as they lay in bed, because their airway, their upper airway is swollen, they're not exhaling so well. So their PCO2, their entitled CO2 goes from 45 to 55 to 65 to 70. And suddenly at one o'clock in the morning, because their entitled CO2, their PCO2 is so high, 
they do not look right and they wake up and they start having this barking cough and they almost look like an alien to the mom. That mom calls 911 and when you listen to those calls, they are panicked. But in the six to eight minutes until we get there, that kid blows off all that CO2 and they're back to 40, 45. And when you get there, the kid looks like the Gerber baby and the mom looks like a wreck. This is different than asthma where the kid's been coughing from eight o'clock at night when they went to bed all through the night. And it, it, it's not something that happens suddenly. So here's the tip. When you get to a home at two o'clock in the morning, if the mother's panicked and you say, let me ask you something. Did your child wake up just about 10 minutes ago and not look right? And they had this weird barking cough. If the mother says, yes, yes, that's exactly what happened. Don't give that kid albuterol. That kid needs nebulized epinephrine. And in my systems, we take three to five mLs of one to a thousand. We drop it into the nebulizer and we nebulize that directly. That treats croup. If you think it's asthma, obviously you're going to go with albuterol. So that's a quick and easy way of determining are you dealing with croup or are you dealing with asthma and which direction to go down your protocol. This has been Dr. Peter Antevi with another Pediatric Pearl. All right. Thanks to Dr. Antevi for another pediatric pearl. So let's start getting into some technique stuff here, Dr. DeCanto, because everything that you just said is is fascinating. We are, everyone on this show is really into weird shit and we love the, the just the innovation behind, you know, I don't want to say little things, but finding finding that potential and that beauty in small little things like pumps. Um, yeah. we, we do want to talk about the DeCanto catheter at some sure. point in the not too distant future. Um, but we do want to get into, so if we're if I'm an EMT and I need to know one thing about airway management from the world of anesthesia, right? I have an OPA, I have an NPA, I have a bag valve mask available to me. What is, what's the most important thing that I can do to manage an airway and like, well, give me, give me a pearl and then give me something that I can change today to be a better airway manager as a basic life support provider. Okay. So um, as an anesthesiologist, I'm very heavily into monitoring. I believe the monitoring system really is, I mean, it's, um, it, it's the continual physical exam of the patient. So my monitoring, if you don't have monitoring, monitoring is looking at the patient, seeing if they're breathing and seeing whatever you can do to make spontaneous ventilation happen better and easier. Oftentimes that's positioning. Um, I'm hesitant to place nasal airways unless I'm forced to do it. And I know that in EMS, you, you use them quite often. So what I want to underscore to you that although you're um, the EMT basic, although you're the lower end of the, maybe even the emergency medical responder, <clears throat> maintaining spontaneous ventilation in whatever you have to do in terms of sitting a patient up, uh, if they're, if they're uh, somnolent due to a stroke or some other condition, uh, making sure that you apply a jaw thrust. If you don't need an invasive air, any type of an invasive airway, being a, an oral airway or a nasal airway, you don't put one in. But if you do, you have to use the techniques that are gentlest and easiest ways to get it done. One of the things that I've learned, and it took me, I don't know why it took me almost, gosh, um, 15, 16, 17 years to learn this, is placing an oral airway with the simple use of a tongue depressor. It's the simplest thing in the world. So I'm going to pick up my, my ruler here that I'm using as a surrogate for a tongue depressor. Using a tongue depressor, tongue down, device in. Something simple, okay? Um, so if your patient needs to have assisted ventilations, one of the difficult things to do with um, assisting ventilation is that you guys have been taught 
the CE mask grip. And um, I have contributed to a recent, I'm gonna take the ring off. I've contributed to a, a, um, an online uh, EMS refresher. Um, I, the name of it escapes me right now. Uh, refresh 2021. Yeah, re refresh 2021. And I did an entire thing on face mask ventilation and maybe you guys can see that, but the CE mask grip was actually originally intended to hold an ether mask. So with these extra fingers, the pro these extra fingers were actually used to feel the pulse at the uh, the facial artery pulse along the angle of the jaw. When we were, you, you said it was when we were administering ether. That's ether, like yeah. okay. So it's so it's a very old technique. <laughs> uh, 1847, right? It's um, actually, ish, it, somewhere thereabouts. Actually, eight, really 1842. If you uh, if you look at Crawford Long in rural Georgia, uh, 1842. Um, this is really not meant to to give a jaw thrust. These fingers are not jaw thrusty fingers. But um, if you guys see how simple it is for me to palm this 22, this is a 22 millimeter connector, by the way. If you palm this and reach over the tip of the chin and you do a jaw thrust from the submentum, this gives you a head and neck extension and it gives you a jaw thrust that actually works. And if you do, if you do this maneuver the best way, you start with two hands, you grab the angle of the jaw and jaw thrust. You hold the jaw thrust on the right while your hand, left hand kind of walks like a spider or a crab, really a crab, to the tip, secures the chin. This hand comes off, and now you've got the bag, okay? Uh, I've written a chapter has been about four years ago in uh, Hogberg and Benemoff's uh, Airway Management. The guy who really wrote it mostly was Adrian Matioc, my co-author. The guy is brilliant. He taught me more than I ever knew about face mask ventilation. But Adrian, Adrian needed a little bit of help with writing. Um, I cleaned his English up. The guy's originally Romanian, uh, but the, if you can understand his English, the Romanian's English, you can understand airway management. Uh, so I was more of a chapter editor. Uh, but Adrian taught me so much, and one of the things I learned was uh, validated airway maneuvers on the bony protuberances of the face. This is weak. This is strong. This is strong. This is weak. And we all understand. So, our, so just pushing against the, the backside of the mandible. So, and the, so the front you know, the your, mandible, your mandible takes a curve right in front of your ear. You've got to grab the mandible at the flat portion right in front of the ear. And that's what's going to allow the lower jaw to be pushed out. And that's what's going to apply an airway maneuver. It's applying, uh, applying airway maneuvers to the bony, uh, the, bone, the bones, the bones, not the, this is really kind of shitty in the midpoint of the jaw, the CE is doing the application of force to um, um, uh, advantage, uh, the least advantageous part of the human mandible. The CE is applying an airway maneuver to the least advantageous portion of the mandible. So we've talked, we've talked, you want to actually get a good seal and a good grip. And what you're saying is, because it, it's an audio format, so I just want to make sure that everyone gets oh, it. Oh, okay. When, it, when you're when you're actually holding down the mask in the classic C3 format, you're trying to get your ring finger and your pinky finger to the mandible. And the idea is that you want to be able to protrude the, the actual lower jaw forward. Yes. And what tends to happen is, and we, we see this in practice too, is instead of actually <clears throat> taking your finger, which incidentally your pinky rather, which is incidentally your weakest finger, yes. trying to take your two pinkies and advance the mandible forward, you don't necessarily get good results from it. So what we end up no. doing is we end up pressing kind of in the middle of the mandible, right? Where our, you know, where the molars and incisors are, where it actually ends up pushing the jaw up 
And what that'll do is it'll actually take the, the tongue itself. It can push the tongue back into the airway. It can help the occlude. You're actually uh, helping to facilitate occluding the airway and not so much helping to open it in that particular setting. So keep keep going on. I just want to make sure that everyone that's cool. I mean, that's what we're talking about. So what he basically said was he's causing a nasal pharyngeal airway, a nasal pharyngeal airway obstruction. It's counter it's counterproductive to, yeah, it to sure press is. up on the jaw. Yeah. And it, it also causes fatigue. And we know that like after a yeah. while, yeah. especially if somebody's there bagging, you've got an say you've got an opioid overdose patient, you're an EMT, you're on scene, you're ventilating, you're doing everything right, but you don't have you your your hand grip is what you've been taught in. EMT school yes. and you're using this EC technique after a few minutes, you're not going to be as efficient. You're, you're going to be using your muscle groups are going to get tired. You're going to be in the wrong position. That t- that jaw is going to slip back and you're not going to be ventilating effectively. This is a much easier way to do it because you're using the stronger part of your hand over the top of the mask. You're pulling that jaw physically forward and you're actually hooking your fingers underneath the chin and pulling that jaw forward. And that's going to give you the space you need to ventilate effectively. Amen. You get a symmetric face mask seal because the force is symmetrical over the dome of the mask. Um, the, the other difficulty with the CE technique is that you only have a good seal along the left margin of the mask and you're seeing experienced uh, paramedical per- personnel pulling the BVM towards the right to complete the seal. Uncool, right? Okay. Yeah. yeah. Just trying, just trying to adjust the physics of it. Like you're lacking on this side, so yeah. it's going to add extra force. I mean, it's a, it, it sounds like something that we would do in EMS. It's uh, if you haven't seen if you haven't seen this program. I know I I chill for this program regularly because I'm going through it. Um, you know, I I don't care if you're an EMT or paramedic. Get on and and look at this. This was some top shelf stuff. And like I said, it it really did change how I'm doing things, and especially how I'm teaching in the EMT classes. Like I'm not teaching CE technique anymore. I'm like, don't do that. Okay, so we've gone through a lot of the BLS techniques, and and again, put, when you're going through CPR class now, you know they they also say the best way to actually do ventilations is with two rescuers holding onto the jaw. So the this C three thing, um, it, to my mind, can kind of go. It, it, I feel like we're teaching something that goes back to the ether mask, right? Where it's like we've been teaching the same thing since 1842, so we just keep doing it, and we know that it's not super effective. Um, and yet it's something that we keep teaching doing. So for those of you listening now, we have, I feel, a preponderance of evidence that we can change that one simple technique. It can actually help your ventilation, help your airway management so much more just at the BLS level. So Dan, let's get into some of the stuff with intubation and meds. Oh, cool. Um, well, Doc, I just want to, I, you know, one of the things that I, I, I think as uh, paramedics is I don't think we prepare enough. Uh, I don't think that we... I think we get stressed out and I think we, we rush to get a tube when we don't necessarily have to. Um, how do you think, what do you think about that? What should we be focusing on when we're getting ready to do that intubation, realizing, you know, Hey, we're in the back of an ambulance. We have limited resources. Um, you know, some of us may not have a full range of equipment that you have. Um, take us through, like, what, what are some things we should be thinking of? So one of the things that I've learned by um, collaborating with EMS professionals like yourselves is that there has to be a certain systematic way to ensure that you're going to get this right on the first try. Because um, you know, if I if I were in your case, I would be thinking I've got to do this well, otherwise I shouldn't. You know, maybe they're not going to let me do it anymore, or maybe I'm going to hurt this patient instead of help them. So. Um, a colleague of mine from Wisconsin, his name is Bob Barracks, and I came up with something we call the CAMP 
uh, program for Sun Prairie, Wisconsin's EMS department. Um, it was highly, highly, highly successful in bringing their first pass success rates up. The CAMP stands for Comprehensive Airway Management Program, and I'm gonna, just going to describe those steps. And this is, uh, you can do this without a lot, of, a lot of extra stuff. The first portion of CAMP is proper positioning of the patient. If you don't position your patient properly to make laryngoscopy the most um, efficacious, uh, to, to, to make it the most effective, um, you may be setting yourself up for failure. So the patient has to be positioned. If you go back to the paper uh, of Peter Safer in, um, uh, I forgot Dr. Stepp's first name, the Stepped was the junior. Safer at the time in 1970 was chairman of the Department of Anesthesiology at the University of Pennsylvania in Pittsburgh. And they wrote a 15-step uh, paper, uh, which is referred to as the, the sort of the original origin of RSI in emergency medicine and pre-hospital medicine. If you guys read the paper, what you find out is that 11 or 12 of the steps is stuff that you do anyway. Mm -hmm. um, but the most important parts were Dr. Safer mandated that you position the patient head up 30 degrees he also mandated that you position the legs up. And that was because it, at the time they were utilizing uh, penithol as the primary um, induction agent and they wanted to avoid um, severe hypotension or frankly, arresting the patient on induction. So they wanted the preload from the lower extremities. Uh, nobody's really doing that. If you're worried about that, you, you'll give a, a drug which is, has less propensity to cause hypotension. And you'll probably also use push dose pressors with the induction. So proper patient positioning, it almost sounds like that whole thing of proper, proper preparation prevents a piss poor performance. So proper preparation uh, with, with, with um, positioning. Um, so the head is up, number one, thorough, thorough, thorough pre-oxygenation prior to the intervention. That will stop you from having a cardiac arrest due to hypoxemia instead of you having cardiac arrest due to the induction drugs. So you have to sort of make sure that you don't kill the patient in an attempt to save the patient, okay? So number one, positioning. Number two, pre-oxygenation, and also the use of nasal oxygenation during the intubation attempt. It's a little bit it's a little bit wishful thinking to think that 15 liters per minute is really going to do the job during the apneic portion of airway management, but it's it's a step in the right direction. And I'll talk Excellent. about high, I'll talk about high flow nasal cannula when we're done with this. Okay. okay. Yeah. Cause that's an interesting point you just brought up because when that it's came on board with us, everybody's like, Oh, this is the greatest thing ever. Well, it's wishful and, thinking. It's okay. there, there, we will, we'll talk about high flow nasal cannula when we're done uh, with this little thing. So number one, we've got the position. Number two, we got the oxygenation. Number three is the preemptive use of suction during whether you're putting in a extraglottic airway, supraglottic airway, or you're doing laryngoscopy. The preemptive suctioning um, uh, reduces the chances that you're going to fail on the intervention because in 25% of cases, you're seeing soiled airways without a hospital cardiac arrest and CPR, okay? Um, I'm not going, going to go any further into that. This is in the literature. Uh, it's also in the literature, in the anesthesia literature, like 67 years ago, that 25% of patients during face mask anesthesia were experiencing uh, aspiration. It's the same percentage. So basically, if I neurologically incapacitate a person and face mask ventilate them, I've got the same rate of aspiration, whether it's I'm giving anesthesia or saving your life due to cardiac arrest. It sort of all fits together in my book. 
Okay, so, so, so uh, just just real wait. quick on the on those two steps because and I I it's important that we get everything kind of kind of broken down. So yeah. when when you're talking about pre-oxygenation, I know we're going to get into the high flow nasal cannula. You're not talking about just 15 liters being under breather. You're talking about an active oxygenation process. So indeed, um, if we're going to do face mask ventilation, it's probably going to be a two-person deal. Number one is you're going to give a little bit of peep for lung recruitment. One person's going to hold the mask with a proper fit and a proper jaw thrust. The other, you're going to have somebody else squeezing the bag. And when you want them squeezing the bag, you don't want them squeezing the bag fast. You don't want a high inspiratory flow rate. That's what's going to open up the esophagus and put gas into the stomach. High inspiratory flow rates do that. We think of pressures because all we have is a pressure gauge. I mean, we've had pressure gauges since uh, the 18th century with the advent of steam boilers and stuff and the industrial revolution. We don't have flow sensors. Those are on ventilators, man. Those are expensive. We just have pressure gauges. And we know what pressure gauges are for the last 250, 300 years because of steam. So, okay. Um, so, so you have that. And then just another, just another quick word on positioning, because I think most of the patients that we tend to get that are candidates for being intubated with advanced airway management of any type, whether it's RSI or whatever, I think we tend to have them supine. I think patients or providers tend to actually hyperextend the neck. Um, some of that I think is just rote memory from 20 years ago, but talk to us about proper patient positioning and then we can, we'll move into the actual procedure itself. All right. Um, one of the things that I've learned from working with um, Bob is um, when you're in an environment in which the patient is flat on the ground, how are you going to get them positioned properly if, unless they're on a, uh, a stretcher? Well, it's very difficult. However, if you're in a home, you can use uh, blankets and pillows collected from the environment in order to ramp the patient up. You do want that pharynx above the, le the level of the uh, epigastrium. You want, ideally, we're, we talk about an ear to sternal notch, which describes getting that pharynx above that epigastrium. Okay. Um, I don't want excessive head and neck extension. It doesn't necessarily work to align the axes. And I'm going to say this, I don't think that pre-hospital providers should be using anything but video laryngoscopy. I don't see any value to trying to save money. The, the money we're talking about is so inconsequential compared to the costs of the med, uh, these, um, these life pack 14s. Those are, <laughs> those are $25,000. Why are you going to try to save 15, 20 to $2,500? Why are you, what are you trying to save money on? I mean, what, what, what the hell are you saving this money for? You, are you just, yeah. I mean, is it just what? And I, you guys, you know, you're in the Northeast. People in Northeast are less tolerant of mistakes and catastrophes. I mean, <laughs> you're, you're working in one of the most litigiousness, litigious areas of the entire country. And they're going to tell you that they don't want to spend the money to help you avoid. Well, no. so that's, that's one of the problems with progress, right? Is we're always worried that we're going to, you know, whatever the next lawsuit is going to be, you know, how do we know that you didn't secure this or whatever? There's that's, that's a concern to the point where it's taught for, for EMTs and medics in, in our area. That's taught almost as like day one stuff, like not when, not if you get sued, when you get sued. And that's, yeah, it's which is, it's, it's, that's, that's BS. 
we yeah, all know that is. It's part of the reason to have these conversations because there there is data-driven stuff that are best practices that are just not being taught. So things like ramping up a patient 15 or 30 degrees is something that, well, that well, Danny and I were taught, you know, 10, 15 years ago, but it's still not done well, regularly. So how when we're talking about video laryngoscopy, how do you respond, Dr. DeCanto, to people that say, if we don't use direct laryngoscopy, we'll lose those skills and we'll only have video laryngoscopy skills moving forward? Do you care? Does that matter? Um, I, I'm not that concerned with it. And I'm also going to say that if you innate, if you innately understand and know what you're looking for with a video laryngoscope, how is that going to stop you from using direct laryngoscopy? Because you'll, you'll, you know what you're looking for. Okay. You know what you're looking for. You now with video laryngoscopy, now, you know what a larynx really looks like. Right. And you're going to tell me that that's going to somehow disable the people who in their other job are asked to tear the roofs off of automobiles and open fire hydrants, knock down walls and doors and climb in through small air ducts and rescue people trapped by the ankle. You know, I mean, you're telling me that these people can't use a laryngoscope. Uh, these people could rip your head off with a laryngoscope. They're not going to have any problems at all using direct laryngoscopy. I do understand that the skill will fade. I don't necessarily think that it's something that we should necessarily hold on to, just like the United States military doesn't put a huge premium on teaching people how to use bayonets anymore on rifles, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's not Fair a thing. That's, That's a great a, comparison. I love it. One of, one of the things that I've noticed, um, and I and I used to be like a, you know, probably my Mac 4 for my cold dead hands. You know, I, I'm the older medic. I'm the oldest medic in the group, so they make fun of me regularly. Um, but we got video laryngoscopy and I gotta say it's, it's easier. Uh, one of the big things that Kevin and I've noticed uh, as preceptors is it is so good to see the increased confidence in students when you can literally put your hand where, you know, and assist that student to get that intubation or show them what they're looking at. It's a much safer thing for the patient. It's a much better way. Um, even when Kevin and I are operating as a team, you know, just to be able to flip the screen back on the Glidescope and say, hey, Kev, look, and you're like, yep, it's here. Okay, we're good, you know, and yeah. we can move forward with confirmation. Um, how do you feel being somebody that's a teacher? Do you think video laryngoscopy is going to save that skill for us um, because of the ease of it and the ability to to share and teach that's so more effectively than looking over somebody's shoulder. It's a difficult question to answer. I don't know if I have an answer for you because um, I think that, that we have several um, uh, several methods of improving education and improving the confidence of the students. Um, we're, we're ultimately we're every single day, and when you're put in that position, you're training your replacement. And I think that people may cr initially may cringe when they hear that. But you have to understand that there's a point at which you can't or you won't or you can't do this job anymore. And you have to leave that department better than you have found it. Um, you will collect quality data with these newer generation of video laryngoscopes. I know the King Vision doesn't record, um, at least not yet, um, until they come out with a new version of it. Uh, there are several video laryngoscopes that do record. Um, and the newest criteria for um, EMS looking at video laryngoscopes is can they collect quality data from the device? Can they work? Um, in the case of Sun Prairie, Wisconsin, they record every single intubation. Um, really? And, and every single intubation gets recorded and reviewed, every single one. Um, Hilton Head, South Carolina, they went with the, uh, the UE uh, 400 video laryngoscope 
every single intubation is recorded and reviewed. Now that's a department with a, a tremendously high quality standard. And I, I visited Tom Boothelay about two and a half years ago and ran a salad seminar for him. And they went to a CPR model based on the Seattle Resuscitation Academy. And their goal is amazing where they ha he has a, a graphic of a 747's seating chart. And his goal is to fill the airplane with cardiac arrest survivors. And, and he's, he's, filling, he's filling the seats as we speak. Uh, they, they do some amazing stuff there. <clears throat> so high performance CPR, high quality airway management. Um, and I think Tom is actually from, uh, I think he's from New Jersey or something. Um, so um, I'm going to simply say that, look, um, we're, we've just entered, what, is this the second or third decade of the 21st century? Who knows the answer to this? Is this considered the second or the third decade? Is it the second? Do you start counting decades the moment you hit the year 2000? I think, it, I think it's the third. I think okay, so it's the third decade of the 21st century. Why are we, why are we considering not putting video cameras on our laryngoscopes. It's wild, isn't it? It's I mean, a point. It's, hey, yeah. it, it'll be 4K sooner than later. Baby. <laughs> <laughs> so that leads into something that, you know, where I think where salad came into its own is the one, the one problem that we see with video laryngoscopy is when you have that soiled airway, because if you get your optic you know, soiled or you get something on it, uh, it does put you in a bad position. I think this is where this is where salad and leading with suction uh, on every attempt is a really, really important skill for paramedics to get into. Again, nothing that they teach in paramedic school because the National Registry test doesn't talk about it. But to be cool. to be a good airway clinician, I think you this is a technique that you have to do every time. So what's your thoughts on it? Take us through it. You know, what, okay. what's your ideal attempt? Okay. So the beginning of salad, um, this all started when, of course, I, here's, the, here's the story is I actually created a vomiting mannequin before I created a technique and I created a vomiting mannequin that became commercial before we created this ducantal suction catheter. So this is really, really very interesting how this all worked out. But what I discovered was, um, having a large bore suction with a vomiting mannequin was a great idea. Also using the suction catheter to actually open the airway ahead of the laryngoscope and suction ahead of the laryngoscope became something completely obvious to me when I started working through this in simulation. It became so obvious that the name of the technique had to be suction-assisted laryngoscopy with simultaneous airway decontamination or salad. And when you talk about treating a condition which is uh, synonymous with barf, uh, <laughs> it had to be salad. Now, I wanted to originally call it beef, but I couldn't figure out how to make beef work with it. But I finally <laughs> discovered how, what beef salad is, and that's the use of flexible bronchoscopy. So bronchoscopic evaluate, evacuation and evaluation following salad. Beef salad, baby. That's perfect. I'm gonna, I'm gonna use. I would just call it beef in general, just based on principle. Okay. It's like I'm gonna do a beef procedure. You can watch me do it. Yes, right. <laughs> but you need a bronchoscope for that. Flexible bronchoscopy. Um, okay. I love the beef salad acronym. That's great. I, I actually learned it from, if, if you were at SMAC Germany, uh, Das SMAC, 
the two guys who were running the Carl Storrs endoscopy booth with the salad mannequin, those were anesthesiologists. They weren't just anybody. They okay. set up a salad mannequin and they demonstrated every single Carl Storrs endoscopy device they possibly could on that mannequin, which meant not only direct laryngoscopy, but switching over to flexible bronchoscopy and bronching the mannequin and clearing out the distal airways. And um, those guys inspired me. And this is just, uh, this has been an open source project from the beginning. And this is when uh, really curious, smart people start to add to things, you know? Um, yeah, definitely. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so that's the beginning of salad. So salad begins with uh, opening the mouth with uh, the, fing the finger of your left hand along what's called the mental, well, I got to get this written down. I had to look it up in an anatomy, anatomy picture. Let me see. Um, so it is a caudate depression of the lower mandible along the mental labial salsus. Um, so that's basically where the uh, this little um, yeah. depression is. You put your finger on the chin and you distract the lower mandible so that you can then place the suction. You're going to hold the suction in an overhand, um, some people call it an ice pick position, but basically you're holding the rigid suction catheter as if it is a laryngoscope. So the curve is going to go downward and away from you, okay? That's placed into the mouth of the, the, the simulated patient in the case of a mannequin. The oral pharynx is decontaminated and as you reach the base of the tongue, the suction is then used to depress the tongue into the floor of the mouth as if it is a laryngoscope. By doing so, you now begin the intubation procedure with what I call an oropharyngoscopy, an, oral an endoscopy of the oropharynx. Rich Levitan talks about epiglottoscopy. In my opinion, he skipped a little bit too far ahead. You need to perform an oropharynx endoscopy, look in the mouth, then get the tip of that blade around the base of the tongue, and then you begin your your quest for epiglottoscopy after you've done that oral pharyngoscopy. Now you're doing a hypopharyngoscopy where you're looking into the hypopharynx, looking for the epiglottis so that you can uh, isolate it, either slip into the vollecula or uh, directly elevate the epiglottis. With most of your endoscopes, you're gonna wanna go into the vollecula, which is the space between the ventral portion of the epiglottis and the base of tongue, okay? If you directly elevate the epiglottis, you will run the risk of getting too close to the larynx to intubate. That is a situation that happens even in ta top tier aeromedical networks. Um, there is a certain very large aeromedical network that was having difficulty intubating with the CMAC. Mm -hmm. When you reviewed their videos, their paramedics were getting too close to the larynx. They were ele directly elevating the epiglottis. They were getting too close to the larynx. And when they were going for their tracheal tube maneuver, delivery maneuver, the angle of attack became too acute for them to come around the base of the tongue and up and towards the larynx. So the tips of their tracheal tubes were impacting the anterior wall of the trachea and not making that posterior flexion to go down in the trachea. Also, because they were getting so close to the optics of the endoscope, they were blacking out the video image. I won't name right. who, when, where, or what, but I was given a chance to weigh in on why the CMAC was giving crappy results to this organization. And the my um, conclusions were, they're getting too close to the larynx. They have to step back. The angle of attack of tracheal intubation is too acute. And they're running across the light source and the uh, video camera. So that's what's screwing up the image. Okay, so 
back to basics now. We're doing an oral pharyngoscopy. We're suctioning. We're leading with the suction. So the tip of the suction slips around the base of the tongue in advance of the laryngoscope. That is going to both evacuate liquids and small solids, and it's also going to compress the tongue into the uh, temporomandibular space, the space between the tip of the chin and the top of the, the, uh, the, the larynx. This is going to ease the insertion of the laryngoscope. What you'll find, especially if you don't do proper patient positioning, is that the tongue completely fills the mouth of the patient without performing some type of a maneuver in which you compress the tongue into the floor of the mouth the insertion laryngoscope is almost impossible, okay? So now we're in the hypopharynx, now we can see the larynx. What if we have a patient who's either continuing to regurgitate or has an ongoing bleed of some sort of a gastrointestinal bleed? We wanna leave the suction in the airway, but it's in the way of tracheal tube delivery. It then needs to be moved to the opposite side of the, of the laryngoscope. We're gonna remove the suction catheter, place it to the left of the video laryngoscope, and most importantly, if you're, uh, you want to use uh, nasal oxygenation during the intubation attempt, you'll have to place the tip of that suction deep enough that it goes under the larynx into the esophagus, or you will evacuate the supplemental oxygen and just, you know, draw air back into the pharynx. It just so, so everybody understands this, what, what Dr. DeCan is saying is when you're going to put that that move that tip to the left, that has to be buried. You literally put that in yes. the esophagus as almost like a sump pump and let that just continually operate because then you're not going to, you're not going to be pulling because of the lower pressure. You're not going to be pulling that oxygen out of the hypopharynx. That's right. So the suction is going to be pulling anywhere from 25 to 45 liters per minute out of the patient. Um, that's gonna overcome a nasal cannula, even a high flow nasal cannula. So now that we have what, what we performed a procedure called the salad park, um, we used a lot of nomenclature from popular movies like Jurassic Park. Um, this is the salad park. We now concentrate on tracheal tube delivery. One of the problems associated with video laryngoscopes if you're not using a channel blade is we're not properly creating the space for tracheal tube delivery. We have to ensure we have the room for tracheal tube delivery. So if you're using a glide scope, using a McGrath, you're using one of the Mac-shaped or hypercurved um, non-channel blades, is it's important to position the video laryngoscope in the mouth so that you have room for tracheal tube delivery. I abdicate the use of a single index finger along the right margin of the video laryngoscope itself in a poking maneuver in order to ensure that I have enough room to place the tracheal tube. If you don't do this, the, um, you'll, you may be put in a position where you're going to get an esophageal intubation. You may also, if you're using a GlideScope stylet, you may drag the tracheal tube stylet along the right margin of the mouth and hypopharynx, pick up the palatoglossal arch and pierce it. That's the, one of the, the most reported complications with the use of the GlideScope is piercing the right palatoglossal arch with the GlideScope stylet because the palatoglossal arch, you'll understand this because you're from the East, it's a lot like prosciutto. And if you stretch it, it will tear. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> that was a great comparison. I'm sorry. Kevin nods knowingly. <laughs> Do you have any Italians out there? Yeah, <laughs> me and my wife. Yes. So we're back to the salad poke. So we have this right index finger in alongside the blade. 
it subtly moves the laryngoscope just a little bit more towards the midline or towards the left, especially since you've placed a suction catheter on the left margin of the uh, laryngoscope, you run the possibility that you're gonna push the laryngoscope towards the right margin of the mouth. You need to create the room for tube delivery. If you have a channel video laryngoscope, the salad poke is not mandatory. It's, it's not really gonna do anything because the, the beautiful thing about the channel blades is they create the room for tube delivery in and of, of themselves. Okay. Now you need to understand, are you too close to the larynx to intubate? Can you see what you're looking at? If you've picked up that epiglottis and you're um, very close to the anterior commissure of the larynx, which is the, the top portion, uh, you're going to have a problem with tracheal tube delivery. You've got to back off, back off, back off. I abdicate something called a salad pinch where I pinch the laryngoscope with my right hand and I make millimeter adjustments either out, usually backing the blade up, back it up by one millimeter at a time until I get what I believe is the perfect position for tracheal tube delivery. I would like to lead with an airway intubating catheter or bougie if I'm using a Mac shaped blade. You can use stylets if you want to. Most of the times in my practice in anesthesia, I just use stylets. I'm not performing a lot of emergency intubations in my practice. Most of my procedures are um, elective. Using a bougie electively, um, sometimes you might have a patient complaint that they feel a scratchy throat because the bougie will actually create a very, very fine kind of a little bit of a, um, a disruption in the, in the mucosa. It, and I'm not, not telling you that you're scoring or cutting the trachea, but the patient's going to feel that. And for elective surgical purposes, I don't use a lot of bougies because I, I just want this patient to have a great day, get, get an operation and go home. I don't want any trouble. So I'm not using bougies electively that much. Um, okay. So, um, but in, you guys are not looking for, um, you know, you're not looking for patient satisfaction. You're looking for patient survival. Mm -hmm. So a bougie is great. So if using a bougie with a Mac shaped blade is a great idea with a glide scope, it's a very bad idea. Bougies will not make the confirmation to make the intubation. There is a gadget that will flex the distal tip of the bougie. It does work. I'm not exactly sure if I'm going to endorse that. I got to be honest with you. It's worked for me, but it, mm, I don't think it's good enough to say that you should be using a bougie with a glide scope. There is a gadget called a through the cords thing, which works perfectly with a glide scope. Um, that's an anesthesia item. It's made in Utah. Um, I think once you check, you, you'll make a decision based upon price with that device, but that is a reliable way to use a bougie with a glide scope, but there's only one device out there. And it's, I think it's more than a hundred dollars per use. Um, so that's going to, uh, impact the bottom line of your department. I don't, so um, what what we're using around here, basically with the hyperangulated blades, is we use the the um, the rigid stylets that the manufacturers so provide. Using, using glide scopes then, or yeah, glide scope, glide scope. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. Well, yeah, I would stick with uh, the rigid stylet, and you just have to understand if you don't do that salad poke, your the tongue may hang over the delivery channel, mm -hmm. and if the tongue hangs over the delivery channel, it'll preferentially push the tracheal tube tip posteriorly and go into the esophagus. Yeah, we've seen that. Yeah, okay, that and also, you know, and also you're going to get that, you're going to get that palatoglossal arch injury if you don't do the salad part with the glide scope, I guarantee it. You have to poke in there. You okay. have to create the room for tube delivery. That is the one tidbit for you glide scope users, okay? So should we be using, the, I know that uh, originally when it came out, it was held up as this is what we should be doing all the time. And then there was some literature that may that showed it was maybe not as effective. What's your thoughts on the 15 liters nasal cannula during an intubation, okay. especially in an RSI? Where, where are we with this? Where should we go with this? 
what's our what should we take from this? Okay, this is what you should understand about the high flow nasal cannula. During the intubation attempt, it may not do anything at all. However, when you're using face mask ventilation with a peep valve, what you've done is you have increased what in the anesthesia language would be, you've increased what's called the fresh gas flow to the patient substantially. By covering the patient's nose and mouth with a mask with a peep valve on the other side of the BVM, <clears throat> the 15 liters per minute of the nasal cannula is going to provide fresh gas flow to the nasal pharynx, larynx, and trachea, which is going to supplement the ability of the bag valve device to be effective. Scott Weingart has deep dived this in the MCRIP podcast about how there's different manufacturers of bag valve devices. And indeed, the valve that, that opens to deliver oxygen in many cases only opens when you're squeezing the bag to force the ductile valve open. Therefore, applying oxygen through the bag valve device may not be pre-oxygenating the patient well, if, but if you put the fresh gas flow under the mask, you're going to get an effective pre-oxygenation, especially with a PEEP valve, because the PEEP valve will help the patient maintain some degree of lung recruitment, which will make the pre-oxygenation procedure more effective and give you a longer safe apnea time for the intubation. So there, it doesn't make any sense to take the nasal cannula off during the intubation attempt, because if you don't get it on the first attempt and you need to face mask ventilate, it's going to help you face mask ventilate the patient safely and with more efficiency. I think if, if we do move to true high flows, 30, 40 liters a minute, the, we, may, we may have a, a, different, uh, a different landscape here, but we're not there yet. We're not there yet. Within this, two years, we'll be there. So this is a good clinical pearl for, uh, for the advanced people out there. And even the EMTs, um, you know, put that nasal cannula on 15 liters a minute, 25 or flush, whatever you can run it at. Then take your BVM, put the mask over it, and now you have with the peep valve, and now you're getting that fresh gas flow, and you're getting recruit, and you're able to recruit as well. Um, so you're saying that's basically the optimal way we can pre-oxygenate people. And if you need to give them a tidal volume breath, you can give them the breath. It's kind of the best of everything. I think it's the best use of the bag valve mask um, equipment. We are using what are called self. Uh, we are using self-inflating bags. A self-inflating bag differs from a flow-inflated bag in that um, it inflates itself with um, whether it's pulling room air or pulling oxygen. Right. Um, the optimal use of this equipment with these with this valve system is to have a fresh gas flow going directly into the patient, not into the back of the bag. So if you had a choice to put fresh gas flow into the back of the bag or into a nasal cannula, but not both, it actually, you could do a better job at resuscitating by putting it into the nasal cannula because the fresh gas flow is going directly into the patient. But once you tracheally intubate the patient, obviously you switch the fresh gas flow to the bag and you know the nasal cannula doesn't work anymore because it's um, not providing gas. So, to so why doesn't somebody just slap an outlet into the valve part of the BVM and you have fresh or on the mask and you get fresh gas flow and you could do it that way? This demonstrates your knowledge of uh, basic airway equipment, and I think that there are um, there is um, there are develop developments in that area going on commercially. I don't know any more than that, but I think someone is already looking at that. Um, not me, um, but that is a uh, that's essentially something that could be implemented very easily that improves improves the quality 
of the device without making uh, expensive modifications to a very right. simple system. Yes. Well, so I, I think that's actually a really good segue into kind of the last thing we want to talk about is one of the things we mentioned on the show a lot is, you know, innovation, the growth of science and literature and like that. And as someone who has just invented your own uh, your own tools for your particular practice. And one of the things, if we've learned nothing from this, is that a lot of the way that you seem to have moved forward in your career is asking why not and just fixing that. You know, it's the, it's the, the Kennedy inauguration speech, right? Like I, people see things and ask why, I see them and ask why not. So the question that we like to ask people is, what do you think specifically is inhibiting innovation and medicine? And what can I guess a, I don't want to say a normal person, but what can someone who's, you know, a staff medic, staff physician, what can they do to help move their practices along without developing, you know, patents or spending a lot of money? Oh man. Well, it's almost a podcast worth of discussion on this, isn't it? No. <laughs> you can come um, back. We're fine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 We'll, we'll follow it up with a sequel. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. So um, in terms of, um, I think um, one of the neat things about um, meeting people through the whole free open access medical education movement has been it's concentrated individuals who are curious and continually want to learn. And it's a little bit shocking when we discover that not everybody feels that way about their job, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So um, this is one of these things where it's one of the mysteries of life. However, I'd like simply to encourage those of us who uh, are never going to stop asking why and never stop asking um, why are we doing things like this uh, to get curious enough to discover the reason why we're doing things. So for instance, if I'm going to abdicate a change in the way we hold a face mask, I actually have to tell you that there's um, that the uh, information that I'm providing to you on how the CE grip came about comes from an, an article in the journal Anesthesiology, was, which was written on the history of airway management by Adrian Matiak, um, who is a professor of anesthesia at the University of Wisconsin, who's now retired. And Dr. Matiak discovered in deep diving the, in the history of uh, airway management from essentially prehistoric times to the current day was um, uh, certain things were done but held on to because there wasn't... Um, uh, there wasn't a big enough incentive to change them. Uh, we do things that uh, seem archaic because um, if they're sort of still working, you still sort of do you, you, you still do it, right? The CE grip still sort of works. But if I give you the if I told you that it's, it was invented as a technique to hold an ether mask, it gives you the incentive to begin to look at the medical literature to um, look at the simulation and clinical studies that show that a different technique is better. So as uh, the current generation of medics are, we've handed the baton off to millennials in many cases. I don't know if you guys are millennials or, or generation X. So it's, there's a millennial and you're a gen Xer there. Right? I'm a millennial Dan's gen X. Yeah, yeah okay. absolutely. All right. So, you know, the gen Xers are entering their fifties, you know, um, as we're handing uh, control of the system off to the next generation. Um, what I would say is that uh, using, um, usually when people think of quality management in medicine, they um, uh, it may have a good name or it may have a bad name. And it depends upon how the quality management system is run. 
But if you start to use quality data to make your decisions, it helps you make a case for making uh, the incremental changes that improve quality. So for instance, how is it that you're going to justify uh, the use of uh, all video laryngoscopy and recording all of the cases? Well, you ha if you're having failures in intubation, it would, you have to capture why the intubation failed. Did the, did the, and did the rescuer not pro proactively suction airway? Did they place the laryngoscope too close to the larynx? Uh, did they um, not, um, did they have difficulty with tongue control during the insertion of the laryngoscope? These are the types of things where you'll never be able to prove that salad is better than normal airway management. But if you start to implement the steps that are in the bundle, you'll begin to discover that the quality data uh, suggests that your first pass success rates go up. You're uh, you'll never be able to prove that you've reduced aspiration. You just may, um, that may be a quality data point that EMS will never capture because it's a hospital data point. Um, uh, so whatever it is that you're doing, uh, let me just say something that's going to be a little bit far out for most of you to kind of dig. <clears throat> if you're going to do something and whatever it is that you do completely depends upon you, your personality, your ego, your ability to open a shop on Etsy or something like that, even if you're successful, it's going to be a short-lived phenomenon. You have to do something and build it in such a way that it will no longer make any difference whether you're there to oversee it or not. You have to build something that truly outlives your interest in this career or your physical life itself. Whatever you do, whatever you build, build it in such a way that you're making something that will endure time and endure life because, eh, you know, life is limited. And, and the other thing is you have to understand is I think I, I'm most definitely the guy who here who's a millennial, millennial understands this, is that your interest in doing this type of stuff is going to be limited. You might, you might do something else, man. You might get inspired and go to law school. I mean, who, who knows, you know? Um, you might get inspired and do something else or move to the, move to the desert and work for Elon Musk or something, you know? I mean, I, there's, there's worse fates than where I was working for Elon Musk at this point. Right. Yeah. But Dr. DeCanto, it's been such a privilege to talk to you. Thank you so much. Everything that you told us has oh. just so much information. Uh, <laughs> all that stuff is going to be listed in the show notes and thanks so much for joining us. Uh, yeah, really please come back. <laughs> I'd love to do another one. <laughs> 